Good morning, storehouse. Ecclesiastes 1, 12 through 2, 17. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is, un is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in, in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I search my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart with, still with guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works, I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forests of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who, could, who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that had that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom, and madness, and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will also happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. The word of God for the people of God.
Well, good morning. This is a good chunk of scripture that we got this morning. So I hope y'all are ready and caffeinated. My name is Marco. I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McKellen. Uh, And if you didn't get to hear Christina, we're going to find ourselves in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, going all the way through chapter 2, verse 17. This is a a series that we just started, and so we find ourselves in the Old Testament. Got a couple of quick announcements for you. The the first one is that if you are new, we'd love to hang out with you. We'd love the opportunity to pray for you. And uh, so we have these Connect cards that are at the Connect desk. Fill one out, drop them at the Connect desk, and and one of our staff team will will get with you. In addition to that, uh, we love to preach from God's Word. Uh, We love God's Word, therefore we want to gift you God's Word. And so if you don't have a Bible or if you know someone who could use a Bible, we have those available. That's our gift to you. Take one with you. The last two gifts that I have for you. First one is, uh, we have these scripture journals uh, by Crossway that are on their way to us um, uh, for this series. I I just blanked out on what we were doing today. Uh, So in this series here in Ecclesiastes, but for whatever reason, they have not gotten to us yet. We actually ordered them about a month ago, hoping that they would get here at the start of the series and they're not here yet, but they will be here. And so as soon as we know, you guys will get hooked up. And finally, if you were with us on Wednesday for our Ash Wednesday service, we we were hooking you up or giving out these uh, devotionals for the season of Lent. If you'd like to know more about the season of Lent, if you'd like a free devotional over the next four or five weeks, then we have those available. That's our gift to you. Take one with you. Our friends at Providence in Austin wrote this wonderful uh, uh, journal, or excuse me, devotional, and uh, hooked us up. So that will be in the Connect desk as well. A lot of gifts for y'all in the span of everything that's vanity. So uh, with that being said, uh, I'd like to dig right into our time just because we have so much to, to, to cover. Uh, so let me begin by asking a question as I normally do most of the time. How would you define happiness and are you living out that definition? <laughs> How would you define happiness and are you living out that definition? Put it differently, are you happy? In her book, America the Anxious, Ruth Whitman writes, and I think this might be on your notes, Ruth Whitman writes, the great American search for happiness is a characteristically American struggle, a wagons of the west of the soul. The belief that if you put in enough emotional elbow grease, if you slog out the hours in yoga classes and mindfulness seminars, parachute jumps, and self-help books, and megachurches, and therapy sessions, then eternal happiness will be yours. When a new American friend persuades me to try out a yoga class, you can almost smell the tension and misery in the room. I love that. Happiness is something that everyone is chasing, but sadly, not many people are actually able to find it. And not so surprisingly, happiness in and of itself is a billion-dollar booming industry. Falling in categories such as self-help books or spirituality, religious literature, sex, and general advertisements. 
The hard reality is that we are all eating it up. We indulge in what we believe is going to bring us pleasure and satisfaction. And let me just say, Christians, the church, is not immune to this. The problem is twofold. On one hand, our idea of happiness tends to be chased with earthly wisdom and pithy statements such as, Jesus, take the wheel. Or they tend to be intellectualized pursuits of reason and ration, uh, rationale, and, and, uh, and these, these pursuits tend to be done with earthly wisdom. The second part of the problem is that we don't realize that as we pursue this happiness or the meaning of life with earthly wisdom, rather than inspired wisdom by the Holy Spirit, the result ends up the same for everybody. Pleasure and satisfaction being separated. Someone's calling. That is, we may be pleased with something, but are we really satisfied? There's this exchange in Rocky II between Apollo and his trainer after he has won the title belt in, 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 in Rocky I, and he wants a rematch. If you have seen Rocky II, you know what I'm talking about. He wants a rematch, and he's arguing with his trainer. And his trainer is telling him, we need to just go find other opponents. And Apollo really wants to fight Rocky again. Right? And he goes on to say, do you think I won? And his trainer goes on to say, you got the decision, didn't you? And he goes, man, I won, but I didn't beat him. On paper, I'm pleased with what happened, but I'm not satisfied with the outcome. Solomon in Ecclesiastes 1, as we looked at last week, says something really similar. What can we say that is actually new under the sun? What has been done has already been done. And so that's what we're going to encounter today in our text, and this is our main idea. Wisdom, apart from God, separates pleasure from satisfaction. Biblical wisdom, however, points us towards satisfaction and joy in a heart for Jesus. So if you're new, as I mentioned, we began a new series in the book of Ecclesiastes, and so rather than give you this big review, we're going to look at that in the first verse, because I think it'll unpack it well for us. So let me pray, and then we'll start digging into this text. God, we thank you for a day like today, where we get to gather to sing praises to your name, cry out to you in prayer, and consider our hearts as you reveal yourself to us through your word. You tell us to ask for what we do not have, but to ask in faith. Therefore, we ask you for wisdom, and not simply the kind of wisdom uh, that helps us make a good choice, but a wisdom that glorifies you in our life. This morning, may we receive your word with open hearts and ready ears. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here we go. We're going to look at and park on verse 1 for just a moment, right? So here is what the writer says. I said in my heart, or where am I? There, here we go. Uh, this is verse 12. Chapter 1, verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. The opening of Ecclesiastes, we, when we opened up Ecclesiastes, we noted at least three things, and these three things pertain to what he just said. The first one is this preacher, 
right? That is one who is speaking to the congregation. Uh, the individual who is writing this book is more than likely King Solomon, who is also King David's son. You can read about him coming into the throne in 1 Kings, but particularly in 1 Kings 3, we see something unique fall upon Solomon, where God approaches Solomon and essentially gives him the question we all wish God would ask us, right? What is it that you want? And Solomon responds to God, and he responds this way. This is 1 Kings 3. This is verses 9 through 14. I'm not going to read all of it, but this is Solomon's response. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, your great people? And God was so pleased with Solomon's response. He didn't ask for longevity. He didn't ask for riches. And so God responds to him by saying, because you have asked this, right? Because you have asked this and not asked for long life or riches, <clears throat> I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked for. So the things he didn't even ask for, he hooks him up. But then there is this warning, this, this, this piece of advice from the Lord toward the end. This is verse 14. If you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. So there's this warning there. And despite being one of the wisest kings to ever rule the earth, we see later on through Solomon not only a compromise in his life, but the depth of sin that he pursues in order to obtain more and more and more, only to lose it all at the end. So that's who's writing this book. Second, he's writing this book because he, said he is essentially asking the question, what is the meaning of life? The opening of this book, as we looked at last week, is a little bit gloomy and pessimistic. He uses words like vanity, and if you remember, the word vanity is this Hebrew word that, that means, that, that's pronounced hevel, and it means uh, like, like a vapor or a breeze or a breath. In other words, life is a vapor. We come, then we go. We're not here for very long. It is very, very fast. Then he uses this other phrase called under the sun. And you're going to see this phrase throughout our time in this section. And under the sun is this phrase that refers to living in a fallen world. And he is searching for the meaning of life throughout his time in this letter. As he searches for the meaning of life, we see that Solomon is essentially going to dive into a variety of experiences. But before we dig into that, as he dives into these experiences, he is trying to understand, find the answer to this question, and essentially live life apart from God. So he's not only asking the question, what is the meaning of life? He's going to try to find the answers by living life apart from God and under the sun. And in his endeavors, in his quote-unquote research, what we end up finding out from Solomon is that living life apart from God tends to be selfish 
living. And we looked at three things last week. We looked at escapism. That is when we do things, whether it's good things like hobbies or even time with family or our children or these other vices like being addicted to certain things. The idea of escapism is that we choose to invest all of our time in a variety of things so that we can ignore reality. So that we can ignore things that we are responsible for or people that we're responsible to. We also looked at nihilism, which essentially is that it teaches that there is no objective meaning to life. So why does it matter? We finally looked at hedonism where it's, man, we only have this one life. YOLO is a real thing. So let's just live it up and do all of the things that we can do because at the end of the day, we're all going to die anyway. And so those are three selfish ways of living that we see Solomon actually get involved in. And so the rest of our time in our text this morning, in addition to the book, is going to explore uh, all three of these ways of living through a series of tests conducted by Solomon. So to wrap up this brief review, Ecclesiastes, as it were, is Solomon's memoirs. It's his personal journal on what he's learned from his hopeless attempt to live life without God. And so that brings us to verses 13 to 18. In these opening verses, we need to learn a couple of things. We need to know a couple of things about the language of our English translated Bibles, right? In order to better understand the pursuits or these experiences that Solomon is about to conduct. So this is kind of a preface because a lot of these phrases are going to be used in all of the text. And by way of giving you a little bit of clarity, chapter 1, verse 12 through chapter 2, verse 26 is all one thought. So these phrases are going to come out next week. So here's a little bit of uh, preface. Here's a little bit of learning so that you know some of these phrases as we dive into our time today and next week. So here we go. Beginning in verse 13, he says, and I applied my heart. This is a phrase that we're going to see often. He'll say things like, I applied my heart. I said to my heart and so on. This means that Solomon's quest is commendable. In other words, this is a serious search for the significance and meaning of life. He's not just throwing it away. He's not just like, I'm going to do whatever I want because I do, I do what I want, right? What Solomon is ultimately saying is, hey, this is a serious endeavor that I've been considering, and he wants to examine and investigate every area of the human experience. And this is further uh, explained as he writes, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom. So what he's about to do is not random, but almost calculated. Additionally, in this section, you're going to see the word wisdom come out a lot. Okay? What we need to understand is that Solomon is not, is not referring to biblical wisdom that is inspired through the Holy Spirit. Here, Solomon is referring to earthly wisdom. That is, a wisdom apart from God. Each one of us has this apart from God. The ability uh, by His grace where we have this ability to think and contemplate and make wise decisions and make sound decisions at times. Like Each one of us has that apart from God. But what you and I need to understand is that this wisdom is limited. And often it is selfish. 
Elsewhere, and ironically, Proverbs 2, Solomon writes, For the Lord gives wisdom, from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. And so apart from God, we might exercise good decisions, and that is a gift from God. That is his common grace upon his image bearers. That's a good thing, but it is limited apart from knowing God. We've got to know that. Additionally, to further stress this earthly, selfish wisdom, I want you to note right at the beginning of verse 13, he says, and I. You're going to see that word a lot. I. I applied my heart. I said to my heart, I built, I had, I pursued. This is whether Solomon is speaking of himself or speaking to himself. To emphasize that the amount of self-centered pursuit that we see from Solomon, the word I is mentioned over, exactly, it's mentioned over 40 times in this section. Listen, while his search for the significance of life, for the meaning of life, while it is commendable, it's incredibly selfish. In the immortal words of Bane when he's fighting Batman, admirable but mistaken. So, now we really get into the text. Those are the three things that we got to know as we approach all of this section. I applied my heart. In other words, he is putting some serious thought, consideration, effort, concentration towards what he's about to do. The word wisdom is not divine wisdom. It is uh, earthly wisdom. He's trying to live life apart from God, and he's pretty selfish. Okay, here we go. Y'all ready? In this section, Solomon is going to conduct and pursue, as I mentioned, a couple of experiments, four of them. We're going to look at four in this section. We're going to look at the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge, pleasure, possession, and sexual desire. After we look at each one of those, we're going to look at his findings, the results. What did he end up realizing from his experiences? So let's begin with the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge. So he goes on to say, And I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Right? So he says that as he begins this pursuit, he realizes that God gives man unhappy business. This phrase, unhappy business, we can look at it in two ways. On one hand, it can simply be that he's realizing that work, that is what we do, human activity, the human experience, has frustrations, and it has futility, and it has toil, and it tears, and he hates it. On one, th- on one way, that's how we can look at it. I'm looking at human activity, I'm looking at the way we all live, and it's filled with frustration and futility. And the truth is, he wouldn't be wrong. This would be him almost contemplating the garden. Man, after Adam and Eve fell, work now has thorns and thistles, frustration, futility, toil, and tears. On the other hand, this unhappy business could mean the quest that he's on to figure out the meaning of life through wisdom and knowledge, he realizes, I'm actually not the only one looking for the meaning of life. I'm not the only one. And as he realizes this, as he finds himself on this journey, as he's trying to accumulate as much knowledge as he can, what ends up happening is that he just becomes more and more frustrated 
and he's left with more unanswered questions. He, can, he says it this way in verse 14, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, it's all vanity and a striving after wind. See, many of us have experienced this. Many of you may be experiencing this. That the more you search for wisdom and knowledge and meaning and happiness and purpose, the irony is that at the end of your experiment or at the end of our experience is that oftentimes we're left discouraged and depressed with more answers, excuse me, more questions that need answering. In this section, Solomon begins to conclude that the search for meaning of lo- the meaning of life through, through wisdom and knowledge is vanity. And we're starting to see his heart in all of this, that rather than approaching wisdom and knowledge with humility, he's approaching it with curiosity to accumulate more knowledge, and he's just getting more and more upset. He uses this phrase, striving after the wind, meaning just when you think you got it, just when you think you had what you wanted, you actually don't. He says that figuring out the meaning of life was like trying to hold the wind or smoke in your hands. And he concludes by even giving us two proverbs. The first one in verse 15, he says, what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. What Solomon is saying, I've realized that some things in life are hard and broken and crooked. And it's not necessarily implying crime. It's not necessarily implying bad things, but simply things that can't be straightened out no matter what. Have you ever had those kind of endeavors where you're just trying to fix something, you're just trying to change something, and no matter what you do, it's just the harder you try, the more upset you become. And so in verse 16, he writes, I sit in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom. In my heart, great wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. So he's accumulated a bunch of knowledge. He wants to apply some of this wisdom in the context of madness and folly. The word madness here has, doesn't have to do with like he goes crazy or it doesn't have to do with something like this mental disorder, right? And it has nothing to do with his mental health so to speak. Instead, what it refers to is that he is going to willingly disobey God. He's just going to do the things he wants to do. He's going to try to figure out what's right and wrong by doing it on his own. And so he begins to apply himself through utter disobedience to God and then comes to realize that that too is vanity. And how does it leave him? Verse 18, in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Have you ever heard the expression, ignorance is bliss? Solomon is saying, as I increased in wisdom, the word vexation means irritation, annoyance. So he says, as I increased in wisdom, I only got more frustrated. I only got more annoyed at what's going on. The more knowledge I accumulated, the more knowledge I had, my heart grew sorrowful. I began to have heartache because of the curse. Have you ever had that? Maybe a friend of yours made a bad decision and you're seeing them kind of go through it and your heart aches because you know where exactly they are and what their heart is truly after and your heart breaks for them. Particularly when you have an understanding of sin and it just breaks you and that's where Solomon is at. Like I have this understanding 
And it's just creating more and more sorrow in me. In this first experience of of wisdom and knowledge, Solomon shows us what the best thinking Solomon shows us what what happens when when we put our heads to to accumulate as much knowledge, when we study everything that we've ever want to study, when the best mind comes together or what we're capable of when we just face or concentrate our attention on trying to accumulate wisdom and knowledge. He goes on to say, it still ends in frustration. One scholar says it this way, all learning is empty without God. And so he shows us what we're capable of as we pursue knowledge and wisdom and accumulating so much study, everything that we want. He's reading the best philosophers, the best form of science, everything that he can, and it is all ending in frustration. And so he changes his game. He's like, okay, wisdom and knowledge, probably not the way to go. I'm going to find the meaning of life through another test. And here, this is what we would call hedonism. This is where he's going to dive into the pursuit of pleasure. And he's going to dive into the pursuit of pleasure without resistance. This is at the beginning of chapter 2. He's going to dive into pleasure without resistance and with the intention of learning meaning. Perhaps he's trying to find what true love can produce by giving your heart completely over to it, apart from God. All right? And in this pursuit of pleasure, he gives us two examples of leisure. And this is chapter 2 now. We're looking at verses 1 through 3. And so Solomon writes, I said in my heart, there's that phrase, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. He's talking to himself. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this is also vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched my heart how to cheer my body with wine. We'll pause it right there. So Solomon pursues pleasure or pursues leisure through two departments. We can look at it that way. Through laughter and through alcohol. He's like, I'm going to figure it out. We're going to do laughter. Here's what he means by laughter. He's talking about comedy. Not like he's just laughing to himself, right? Uh, but he's, re- he's talking about comedy here, right? And here, this just shows you the kind of influence and the kind of success this dude had. When he goes on to say that he sought laughter, he's talking about he is the one that brought in and summoned the best comedians to make him laugh. You know what I'm saying? Like, he is the guy that tells the Kevin Hart's, the Dave Chappelle's, the Richard Pryor's, the Rodney Dangerfield's. He is the one that tells them, you're coming to me. You're going to entertain me. He's not asking for permission. He's telling them, you're going to come. You're going to entertain me. And I want to laugh. I think laughter is the way that's going to help me work this out. And at the same time, he throws the best parties. He throws the best house parties, right? Like he doesn't need to figure out, oh, like what are we going to do for entertainment? Do you have the aux cable for Spotify? No, like this dude is Spotify. Like that's how much influence this dude have, how much wealth he has. And he considers that perhaps laughter is the way to find the meaning of life, even laughing at the expense of others. 
He's not just being sarcastic and witty where he throws these jabs. He's like, literally, let's just make fun of people. Maybe that's going to provide us the meaning of life. And he comes to realize life actually isn't funny. It's not a laughing matter. Earlier, he just said, he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So he's like, that's not working. So he dives into alcohol. And the truth is, I'll be honest, like, I'm not sure if this means he was just getting drunk and plastered. He goes on to say, my heart is still guiding me with wisdom. So perhaps he is exercising, maybe he's really good at self-control. But just because he's good at self-control doesn't mean he's keeping himself from drinking and trying anything and everything. I've never had that bourbon. Tell me about that champagne. How would you mix that and that? Let's do it. Like he's not keeping himself from trying anything, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he's getting hammered, but he's not keeping himself from anything. You could think of him as some kind of a connoisseur if you want. Perhaps he is heeding his own advice, right? This is Proverbs 20. He wrote, Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. So perhaps he's like, I'm just going to try it. In the pursuit of pleasure or leisure, that would probably be a better way of saying it, in the pursuit of leisure, essentially he's adopted YOLO. You only live once, you only go around the world once, let's do all the things, and he realizes this isn't working. So then we jump to verses two to four, or excuse me, four to seven. This is in chapter two. Here's the third test, the third experience. And this is the pursuit of possession. Beginning in verse four, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted all sorts of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I had both male and female servants or slaves and slaves who were born in my house. This is the dude who would be featured on some TV reality show or some construction show that some of you may watch, or maybe you'd see his house on the front cover of some magazine while you're waiting at H-E-B. Like, this is the dude who has everything. And what he's about to say, or what he just said concerning his house, his servants, even the animals that he has, they're all accounted for in 1 Kings 4 and 1 Kings 10. Like, this dude isn't exaggerating. And so Solomon recounts everything that he built, the labor that it took. Like he had a massive labor force, male and female slaves. And then some of them had kids in his house. And he's like, sweet, awesome, grow up and work for me. He recounts everything that he built, the labor that he took, and the money that he was not short of. I think it's also in 1 Kings 10, where he tells you about the amount of gold he kind of has. And he says it over like 40 times how much gold he has. Like today's celebrities, like they're nothing compared to this dude. But he, here's what I want you to catch from this. Let me, let me finish reading that little section real quick. He goes on to say, I had also great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had before me in Jerusalem. Check it. I gathered for myself, silver and gold, and the treasure of kings and provinces. 
Elsewhere, on, in, elsewhere in 1 Kings, Solomon talks about how he had like this team, this, this like excursion team. They would literally go and be sent to all parts of the world to gather the finest gold and the finest linen and bring it to him. And so here's what he's doing. The echo of this architecture, the gardens, the pools, the fruit trees, everything that he's building, the echo of this architecture is that of a reconstruction of the Garden of Eden. This dude is trying to go back to the way it was before the fall of man. Before we became corrupted by our sin. He is trying to go back to Genesis 1 and 2. In other words, he's thinking, if I could just create this, if I could just go back and recreate Eden, I'll have it. I'll have it because that must be the meaning of life. What was in Eden? But we can't go back. Solomon could not go back. And he concludes that this too was vanity. That it was meaningless. And so he tries another experiment. And now it's the pursuit of sexual desire. This is verses 8 through 11. We're still in chapter 2. And he pursues whatever his eyes desire. He says, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. All right, that was in verse 10. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. If we go back up just a little bit to verse 8, he concludes verse 8 by saying, I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. Again, he got the best musicians to come and play for him so that he would also write some music. Now, you might not think that's that big of a deal, but in his day, that's, kind of, that's a rarity. The fact that you had that much influence to bring in musicians and then to be taught music and then write your own music, this dude was crazy smart, gifted, talented, all sorts of things. So he invites them over to, to provide for them like entertainment so that he would learn and grow. But then he also says that he pursued, uh, go on, going on to say he pursued many concubines, that is women that were brought to him specifically so that he would just have sex with them. First Kings 11 talks about this. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. So he slept with about 1,000 women. And listen to what it says. I actually only wanted to leave it at verse 3, but look at what it says in verse 4. And his wives, Solomon's wives, turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as it was the heart of David his father. So we see him turning away from the Lord, trying to live in this earthly wisdom that we keep talking about. And he sleeps with over a thousand women. Now, we could pause there because that might sound crazy. Like, really? A thousand women, 700 wives, 300 concubines, for real. But let me ask you, is it really that crazy? 
Basketball athlete Wilt Chamberlain from the 1960s and 70s claimed to have slept with over 10,000 women. Hugh Hefner of Playboy claims to have slept with over 1,000 women. Gene Simmons from Kiss goes on to say the same actual number. And again, you might say, that's dumb, that's them. They're clearly living the life of Solomon. But I'm still going to ask you, is it really that crazy? The porn industry is a $100 billion industry. Every three seconds that, uh, or excuse me, every second, $3,000 is spent on porn. Every 30 minutes, a porn film is made. Every second of every day, there are at least 30,000 people looking at porn. Is it really that crazy? And the truth is, that it doesn't just have to be this pursuit of uh, sexual desire in the terms of like a thousand wives or a thousand men or, 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 or porn. You might say, well, I don't want to be like Solomon. I, I'm actually just looking for the one. But in this case, it's not just about the number, which is terrible. It's not just about the number. It's how he actually viewed these image bearers as products, as commodities. Some of you want to pursue relationship for the exact same reason. You have adopted what Woody Allen once said, the heart wants what it wants. That is a horrible philosophy. For the heart is deceitful. One commentator said it this way, we have sacrificed our souls on the altar of sexual idolatry. For what Solomon gave one line to, our culture needs 5,000 libraries to fill. The idea of the pursuit of sexual desire here isn't just look at the numbers, look at the stats, look at the hearts. It's that this sexual desire, this perverse way of looking at image bearers is considered normal. Let me go even further. It has seeped its way into the church, and the church sees it as normal. It's like when Jude is writing to the churches, right? And he goes, like everyone else outside of Jude, like Paul and even John in the New Testament, when they're writing their letters to a variety of churches, they're ultimately telling them, hey, they might be false teachers or there are false teachers. Stay on guard. They're coming, they're coming, they're coming. Make sure that you're standing firm in the gospel, right? Jude doesn't say that. He says, hey, they're actually in the church now. They are here and you're not doing anything about it. When it comes to the pursuit of sexual desire, it is in the church. When it comes to the pursuit of possessions, wisdom and knowledge for some of you theology nerds, it is in the church. Philip Ryken, a commentator on Ecclesiastes, says it this way, Most Americans today experience more pleasure than most people in the history of the world. Yet in spite of our prosperity, or maybe because of it, we still suffer from poverty of soul. The taste of pleasure has grown our appetite for this world beyond satisfaction. Everybody's hungry. No one's satisfied with God. Everybody wants to be spiritual, but nobody wants to be godly. In all of his pursuits, Solomon pleased himself with everything and kept himself from nothing or no one and was found dissatisfied. 
And these are just four of the tests. We still have some more next week. And so what's the result of this? What are the results? What are his findings of his self-serving, self-centered, self-indulging experiences? Well, chapter 2, verse 11 tells us this. Actually, let me go back up to verse 10. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. So he's saying, I tried everything and I'm getting rewarded for it. I pursued sexual desire, I'm getting women. I pursued uh, finances, success, possessions. I got them. I got all this. Verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Verse 11, he writes, and then I considered. If you're going to highlight something, if you haven't been highlighting, you can highlight that. That is, what Solomon is saying he placed concentrated effort. He looked at what he had done right in the eye. You see him outside in his garden with his moleskin journal or whatever, and he's sitting there and he's, actually, he's thinking, considering, he's staring at reality, he's facing up to reality and looking at what life really is. And he concludes that the vanity of pleasure in the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge, entertainment, possession, and sex cannot satisfy the soul. All of it was a striving after wind, and he gains nothing from his experience. But he concludes, he gives us two things, right? We're looking at his findings. He gives us two things. This is found in verses, uh, I guess this would be 12 through 18. So let's look at them briefly. Verse 12, I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can man do? What can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has been done. Then I saw that there was more gain in wisdom than in folly, more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. So here's his first finding. He realizes wisdom is good and necessary, but it is limited. See, earthly wisdom the gift of God's common grace. Wisdom, we use it to make good decisions. He's exercised just like we do, just like some of you. He exercised self-control. He exercised courage. And he's saying that's good. It's helpful. It's necessary. It is a gift from God for everyone. And it is absolutely, totally limited and selfish. The vast pleasures that Solomon pursued failed to satisfy him and left him dissatisfied, discouraged, and depressed. So what was his first finding? Wisdom is good and necessary, but limited. What's his second finding? Wisdom does not protect against death. Verse 15. <clears throat> Actually, the end of verse 14. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? Remember that word wisdom, right? Like when I was studying for this a couple of weeks ago, every time I kept coming to wisdom and wise, I'm like, oh my gosh, why, it, why be so wise? He's talking about earthly wisdom. Don't forget that, okay? Why have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, this is also vanity. The wise, for the wise 
as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. Number one, the first finding, wisdom is necessary, but it is limited. Second finding, wisdom does not protect against death. He concludes that all of this, wisdom, earthly wisdom, wisdom apart from God, does not protect one from death. The wise and the foolish, they die the same, and they will be forgotten. And he concludes, I think this is in verse 17, yeah, and he concludes, I hated life. Why have I been pursuing all of these things? I hated life. But he doesn't say that he hated God. But he is trying to live life apart from him. He's trying to live life under the sun. That is, living life apart from God in a broken world and concludes that death is the great equalizer. In all of this, we must consider Solomon pursued each of these endeavors. Let me pause right there. Some of you are trying to live your life this way. You are trying to live your life apart from God. You do good things like exercise wisdom and maybe courage and maybe make some good decisions. And you are trying at the core when you apply your heart as Solomon does are trying to live life apart from God. And as we consider Solomon, we need to understand that he pursues each one of these endeavors, endeavors that you and I are tempted to pursue and indulge in. He pursues each of these endeavors. He reaches all sorts of conclusions, exercises enormous amounts of wisdom and energy, and has access to the most vastly intellectual resources we could ever imagine. And not once does Solomon seek the wisdom of God. Not once do we see him fear God. That is, who God is and who he says he is, and that Solomon is not him. The guy that was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write Proverbs doesn't even find himself searching the Scriptures so that he would find meaning and wisdom from God who has given it to him. At no point in these endeavors do we see Solomon pursue wise counsel. Not once do we see him pray. Not once do we see him in spite of all the women and the slaves and the resources. Not once does he go to one of his bros and say, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. Do you think it's a good idea? And someone saying, no, that's a terrible idea. Solomon doesn't do any of that. And all this text is filled with his eye. I applied my heart. I asked of my heart. I built houses. I built the gardens. I pursued the women. I had the possessions. Some of you are trying to live like Solomon. And this portion of Ecclesiastes leaves us with what life looks like when we exercise wisdom apart from God. You may be experiencing pleasure but I'm pretty sure none of you are satisfied if that's what you're doing. This section leaves us, if we leave it there, this section leaves us as dissatisfied sinners. 
while at the same time showing us the Savior that we need. See, Jesus enters into all of the vanity and all of the vexation that you and I experience. He lived life under the sun, the same sun that you and I find ourselves in, and shows us the wise way to live through his obedience to God and his satisfaction in the Father. And it doesn't end there, because that would just be a wonderful example. And to be honest, that would be enough, but he doesn't leave it there. It doesn't end there. While everything that Solomon concludes and that you and I look at, while everything looks unbalanced and crooked and broken, it will not be that way forever. In the end, in the end, Jesus makes sure that everything is balanced, everything is straightened out, and that everything is restored, and he does so by first reconciling you to the Father. He reconciles you to the Father through his blood. Praise be to God. We're not left there. Wisdom apart from God always separates pleasure from satisfaction. Wisdom from God points us to our satisfaction in Jesus. And so as we close, Ecclesiastes shows us a life lived apart from God and in our limited wisdom. Yet, for those who know Jesus, the beauty of his gospel is that we don't have to experience vanity and vexation and meaningless the same way. That there is an answer, that we weren't left to ourselves. You see, in everything that Solomon pursued, Jesus was also tempted by, but resisted. Jesus is the Savior every single dissatisfied sinner needs. In Jesus, we can not only find pleasure in the gifts of God, but satisfaction of being known and knowing God through Jesus. It's not like he's a killjoy when it comes to laughter and alcohol. Those are gifts from God to be enjoyed. Those moments of joy that God gives us when you're around the table with your friends and you're laughing so hard that your abs start cramping and you realize that this is probably more ab work than you've done in the gym and this works better than going to Planet Fitness. Like that is a gift from God in that moment when we recognize good architecture and artists and different kinds of art mediums, we realize that these are gifts from God to be enjoyed. Creation is a gift from God. Psalm 19 goes on to say that the skies and the heavens proclaim his glory to us every day. They point us to him. Sex is wonderful and awesome. It is a gift from God to be enjoyed in its rightful context in a covenant between a man and a woman in marriage. Knowing God is a gift because through the Holy Spirit, we can flee temptation and find pleasure in the presence of God through Christ. As mentioned last week, Ecclesiastes may be a hard word. It may be an honest word. But praise be to God that it is not the last word. 
So Christian, let me ask you. Are you trying to pursue pleasure, satisfaction, happiness, and joy? Are you trying to pursue those things apart from God? If so, how's that going for you? Let me invite you to cast, that's to throw, to cast your burden and your frustration, your futility and your irritation before the Lord. Let me invite you to surrender to the grace of the Lord Jesus, to surrender for, to that grace by confessing and repenting of your sin fixing your eyes as Solomon didn't do fixing your eyes on the beauty of God for you so that you may enjoy the gifts of God and the grace that he is present tense pouring out on you and if you don't know Jesus this life under the sun is the closest that you will get to heaven this life is how you live apart from God. Vexation. Even the greatest philosophers of Solomon's time couldn't defend against death for them. Nothing was on the other side for them. Yet Jesus offers the grace of salvation to you so that you would experience redemption. That is a new heart. And so that death would not be the end, but merely a vehicle into glory. And through this grace, he opens your eyes to living life, not just under the sun, but through the sun. It's so a church. Wisdom apart from God separates pleasure from satisfaction. Biblical wisdom points us towards satisfaction and joy in a heart for Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you that we are tempted by the same things Solomon was tempted by and indulged in. And we confess that if our hearts don't indulge in these areas, then we do so willingly through our actions at times. We confess these sins before you. The sins that no one knows about and the sins that everyone knows. God, we confess that our sin is a burden to us. And at the same time, that there are those that are not a bother to us because we have grown used to them. Father, we confess this before you as a church. And in confessing this, we ask that you would forgive us, Father. That you would, that you would send us the Holy Spirit that he may be our light in the midst of darkness. In the midst of the darkness we're tempted to indulge in and step back into. You have supplied us with the strength needed by meeting our deepest need through faith in Jesus. Father, we ask that you would pour your grace out onto us this morning so that we would walk in your light for your glory and your good 
and our good. May the meditation of our heart and the words of our mouth be pleasing to you this morning. Amen.